0: Hey, have you ever noticed that there are a lot of things in life that sound easy, but are incredibly hard to do? Getting an answer over the phone about a problem from your internet provider. Sounds easy, right? 14 operators later, not so easy. Untangling my headphone cables, that should be easy. There are literally two cords. Yet, it is the unsolvable puzzle. Taking a price tag sticker off of an item should be easy, yeah? What kind of glue do they use on those things? They should put the space shuttle together with that stuff. Canceling your gym membership should be easy. Try it sometime. Okay, here's what'll happen. You'll somehow end up signing on for six months more and paying more money than you did before. Here's one. Stop worrying. Sounds easy. Have you ever been anxious about something and some well-meaning person said to just, you, just stop worrying about it? Oh, that's the secret? Just stop worrying. Like, don't you think I would if I could? Do you think I enjoy my stomach in knots and sleepless nights in a continual low-grade headache? Just stop worrying. Yeah, sounds easy. Musicians. Getting a guitar pick out of an acoustic guitar when it's fallen down the hole should be easy. The pick is this big. The hole in the guitar is this big. And yet when you turn it upside down and shake it, somehow it gets lost in the eternal abyss. Something sound easy, but they are not easy. Here's one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's possibly the most common biblical quote used by people inside and outside the church. I mean, even people who don't necessarily claim a faith life quote these five simple words. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds easy. It's not easy. And yet here it is. You know, we've been considering together over the past several weeks a conversation between Jesus and a teacher of the law from Mark chapter 12. And Jesus quotes the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, a section of the scriptures that focuses specifically on loving God, right? What it means to love God with our hearts and our souls, our minds, our strengths, to love God with, with every part of our being, to be all in. And, you know, we hope this journey through the great commandment has been a blessing in your life. But here's the thing. Jesus could have ended this conversation with the teacher of the law right there. He does not. Jesus makes an addition. And it's not an easy one. Oh, and and there's one more commandment. There's one more component That simply must be included if you are truly going to be all in, in loving the Lord your God. You also must love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. You know, in a different account of the same story in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus makes this just incredible statement. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, essentially, he's saying you can't make a separation here. It's impossible to fully love God without loving your neighbor. Okay, these two commandments are connected. I mean, 1 John four twenty puts it fairly bluntly, I think. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not. Scene. But don't you just find that sometimes it feels a whole lot harder to love our neighbor than it does to love God? I mean, have you met my neighbor Jesus? Right? The one who fires up his chainsaw at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning on my day off when I'm trying to enjoy a coffee on my back deck and keeps the chainsaw running until the street lights come on. Who could have that many logs? Okay, But but my hope today is that as we look into the Bible, we can learn together what Jesus means when he tells us about being all in with God by loving our neighbors. Okay, Jesus answers two incredibly important questions. Who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love them as myself? Now, when Jesus adds this component of loving our neighbor, he is, in fact, quoting another Old Testament scripture okay, from Leviticus 19.18. And his listeners would have quickly recognized this quote, love your neighbor as yourself. But there are a couple of really important things that need to be pointed out. Okay, Firstly, I, I know some people struggle with this idea of loving their neighbor, not that part, but as they do themselves. Like, really, Jesus, are you sure you want me to do that? Because I'm not sure I really love myself. But the word love that Jesus uses here has nothing to do with emotion. It has nothing to do with fuzzy feelings. It's the word agapices. And it means to have benevolence toward to take regard of someone else's welfare. Jesus is saying this isn't about feeling. It's not about feeling. Loving your neighbor is about doing. Also, I know some people struggle with the idea of loving their neighbor as they do themselves for a different reason. The concept of loving ourselves, I mean, that can seem a little bit narcissistic or self-centered, like, Jesus can't I love my neighbor like I love my family or like I don't know I love my cat? But to love myself that's just uncomfortable but based on Jesus use of the word agapees we love ourselves all the time. Right? We show benevolence to ourselves every day. We're constantly regarding our own welfare. I mean, every time we strive for our voice to be heard in a conversation, we are regarding our own welfare. We're showing Agapeces love to ourselves. When we say, hey, I'm just gonna treat myself to something because I deserve it, we are regarding our own welfare. When we make sure that we have all our needs taken care of first, Before we see if anybody else has any needs, we rush to be in in the front of the line at the grocery store. We are showing benevolence to ourselves. That's what this is about. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not saying you must have an emotional attachment to your neighbor. He's not even saying you must like your neighbor. He's calling us to something much more beautiful and much more challenging. Essentially, Jesus is saying, regard your neighbor and their welfare at the same level as you do your own. Secondly, as his listeners linked Jesus' quote to Leviticus 19, 18, his audience would have defined the word neighbor in a really specific way, okay? In the context of Leviticus, a neighbor was any fellow Israelite or a resident alien that was welcomed and living within the community and following Jewish custom. Okay, the context of Leviticus 19 is Moses telling people how they must treat one another inside the camp. Okay, this is how you treat people in your own community. The neighbor that you're commanded to love in Leviticus, well, they are like you. Same beliefs. Same customs, same background, same culture. This is what loving your neighbor looked like to Jews that were shaped by the Torah. Okay, but Jesus did something really radical here. He extends the definition of who our neighbor actually is. Hey, turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Okay, Luke 10, 25 through 37 In Luke's account of this story, after Jesus tells the teacher of the law that the key to being all in with God is is, is to love him with every part of us and also to love our neighbor. And in this account, the teacher asks Jesus a question to justify himself. Really? He says, Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? And so Jesus begins to tell a story that radically expands the Leviticus 19 definition of neighbor and possibly the most popular of all of his parables. And there are three characters I want you to look at in this parable and consider, in this parable we're about to read together that Jesus uses to demonstrate who our neighbor actually is. There's a priest, there's a Levite, And there was a Samaritan. Let's read the story together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. He said, when I return, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay. The first two characters introduced to us in the story are a priest and a Levite who were extremely privileged members of Jewish society with special responsibilities in the temple. There's a statement in the Mishnah, the second holy book of Judaism, that kind of puts it like this to give us a perspective. It it, it says, a priest takes precedence over a Levite and a Levite over an Israelite. Okay, there's a pecking order of importance here, a cultural ranking, if you will, a system that went priest, Levite, like you and me, regular people, regular Jews. And both priests and Levites had extremely high social standing and they were usually pretty well off as well. Now, the third character is a Samaritan. Samaritans lived in a discreet region just north of Jerusalem called Samaria. And they shared some heritage with Israel, but they were hated by first century Jews as heretics and half-breeds, and the feeling was mutual. So, okay, to contextualize the story, I want you to think of a people group who acts, thinks, and believes the most differently than you do. Okay, take a second. Think of a people group who thinks, acts, and believes like way different than you do. You got them in your mind? Good. Now the story is called The Good Samaritan. So just go ahead and replace the word Samaritan with the people group in your mind that thinks and acts and believes different than you do. The good fill in the blank. In this case, it's Samaritan. This is who Jesus makes the hero of this story. Priest, Levite, you and I, Samaritan. Okay, For Jesus to make the Samaritan, the hero of this story is radical. Why did he do it? Christ could have easily picked any category for any of his characters, but he was intentional. He might've told a story about all Jews. He could have told a story with no ethnicity mentioned at all. He could have made the robbery victim a a Samaritan and the hero could have been the priest, the Levite or the person like you and I, the the regular Jew. But Jesus makes the hero the character who was low in theology, low on, on like a proper lifestyle. That was just true. But high in mercy. And then to make matters worse, when he finishes the story in verse 36, Jesus tells the teacher of the law, go and do likewise. Go and act like the Samaritan. Go and be like that person who's so different than you. This would not have just been challenging for the teacher of the law. This would have been downright offensive. The Good Samaritan, this story is not a cute children's story about treating people nicely. This is a radical spiritual commentary for us to consider about what it means to love all people with the same love that God does. You know, we live in a culture that is ever-increasingly teaching us to build fences and to support those inside our camp. Those with similar interests and beliefs, especially these days, those with the same opinion. That's your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But in the story of the good Samaritan, Jesus teaches us something radically different than that when it comes to the who of the neighbor that God calls us to love. Our neighbor certainly does include people close to us and those that think like us, but it equally includes those who think and live very, very differently than us. And that, in in God's eyes, the hero is the person who extends mercy. Mercy trumps being right. Okay, who is the neighbor that God calls us to love? Everyone, that's the who. Okay, now the how. Like how do I show PC's love that puts others' welfare at the same level as my own? Love that shows mercy and makes us the hero of God's story. Okay, well, the answer is in the parable. Number one, love stops and meets us where we're at. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. Listen, the text doesn't tell us where the Samaritan was traveling to. Maybe he had important business to attend to. Maybe he had family to visit that he hadn't seen in a long time. Maybe. Maybe he was running late. Or maybe he was ahead of schedule. We don't know the specifics around his travel. But here's what we do know. When he came to the man who was beaten and bloodied, who'd been robbed at the side of the road, he stopped. And I love this. He came to where the man was. See, love stops. And love doesn't expect someone to attain a certain level before it's administered. Like you get here and then I'll help. It came to where the man was. And, you know, I can feel the tension a little bit. We have very busy lives and stopping can be really hard. Like, I'd like to help, but it's just a busy season. You know, but the truth is, busy is a myth. We make time for things that are important to us continually. It's usually a question of priority, not of time. But the Samaritan teaches us that people are the priority. And stopping is really, really important. In a busy world, you know, sometimes the greatest gift of love, the greatest expression of mercy that we can give to someone else, the thing that expresses value the most is our time, is simply to stop. Be it in the grocery store, be it in our driveways, be it in our place of work or even our homes, a few minutes of our time can be the greatest expression of love to our neighbors. And love meets people where they're at. It came to where the man was. I don't know about you, but I'm sure, I'm sure glad Jesus came to me where I was. Beaten and, and bloodied in my sin, the way sin had robbed me of life, just like the man laying on the, the side of the road. Jesus' grace stopped and it came to where I was. It saw my desperate need for help and it met me where I was just as I was. You know, that's, that's the love we all want for ourselves, yeah? And it's the love God calls us to extend to our neighbors. A love that stops and a love that meets people where they are despite their condition. Which leads directly to our next point that we read in the text He came to where the man was, and when he saw him. See, love sees. You know, I think sometimes it's not that we we don't want to help our neighbor. It's not that we don't want to love our neighbor. We just don't often see the need. And maybe it's because we don't stop. Right? We don't always see the bruising and the bleeding and the hurts in our neighbor's lives, the people around us, because sometimes if we're honest, it's just easier to look the other way. But seeing is actually crucial to loving. You see, love is observant. It actually looks for needs. It searches like beyond the surface, it sees beyond the masks we wear of, hey, how are you? Ah, pretty good. To see that things aren't good sometimes. Love takes the courage to look and to see some often ugly and painful things because if we don't see, we can't love. Yeah, I volunteer at our local food bank. And my main like responsibility, my, my main role, it's pretty simple, I take big hampers of food and I put them in people's cars. Like that. that's what I do. But what I've discovered through this simple exercise is that you could learn a lot about people's lives by looking at their cars, by seeing. You see signs of addiction. You see signs that tell you this isn't just their car. This is their house. You see signs that tell you there, there are children in this story. See, there are needs all around us. There are hidden, broken things that go unseen all the time. And we live in a culture where people feel invisible. And like the man lying on the side of the road in Jesus' story, they're desperate to just be seen. Mercy sees, love looks. sees, love sees. <laughs> and we need to ask God to open our eyes to see those people and situations he's calling us to bring his love into. Number three, love pities. When he saw him, He took pity on him. Okay, The Greek word for pity here, I won't even try to pronounce, but it literally means to be moved in the inward parts with compassion. To be moved in the inward parts with compassion. See, pity doesn't really do it justice. Oh, such a pity. The meaning here is much more than feeling sorry for. The word is a word that comes from the root splanksna, which actually refers to our organs, our innermost parts. It quite literally means a compassion that we feel the ache of in our guts. A hurt that we feel inside of us. A literal heartbreak that we feel for someone else. See, it's a word that describes an experience of shared suffering most often combined with the desire to alleviate or reduce the suffering of another person. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you have. Parents, maybe when one of your kids, when when they were suffering, you could feel their pain like it was your pain. Like maybe that that time your kid got cut from a a team. Ouch. Or, Or that time when your kid got... Broken up with by a girlfriend, and you were like, Oh, why does this hurt me? Maybe you felt it for a spouse or a dear friend. It's like entering into someone else's pain. It's not as much about pity as it is a deep, deep compassion. See, our God is filled with that kind of compassion. Psalm 103 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in love. And as the people of God, our mission is to manifest God's character to the world around us. And this includes manifesting his compassion. See, the church, the people of God, we are supposed to be the most compassionate, moved in our inward parts, People and places in our towns and our regions and our communities. Okay. It's the heartbeat of our regional ministries that we're highlighting today in our service, our core value of intentional outreach. Talk to some of the people on these teams and you will, you will feel this compassion like spill out of them. Okay. For, for the cause that God has called them to. And like, we can't fake this. As much as we would love for God to just simply make us into compassionate people tomorrow, it doesn't quite work that way. Just like the other evidences of the spirit, we partner with God in receiving his compassion, his heart towards others. And that happens as we place ourselves in postures where we can receive it. And so how do we do that? How do we place ourselves in postures of compassion? Here are just some suggestions, okay? Some places we can place ourselves where God could develop more tender hearts in our chests. Number one, the posture of differing perspectives. Okay, the posture of differing perspectives. We live in a culture, a world where we simply unfriend anyone we don't agree with by the push of a button but okay, we'll, we'll never develop compassion in our hearts by simply surrounding ourselves with a tribe that thinks and feels the same way that we do. Have some people in your life with differing ideas, differing perspectives. Okay, as we develop compassion, we do so by placing our feet into the shoes of people that are different than us. And here's what we discover when we do that. They're not that different. Okay, just like me, this person is just seeking happiness in their life. Just like me, this, this person's experiencing suffering of some kind. Just like me, this person has experienced loneliness and sadness and despair. Just like me, this person's still learning about life. Okay, look at life in somebody else's shoes. Differing perspective. Number two, the posture of listening. Okay, compassion can come in many forms, but it doesn't typically come with a lot of words. Make it your goal to listen well. You know, I recently sat down with a good friend of mine who is is, is not the same color as me. Okay, he's a, a visible minority. And he shared with me some of his life experiences. This like weight that he lives with every day that I just don't in the same way. It's just not my experience. And as he shared these stories, like I, didn't, I didn't offer any advice. I just like listened. But as he shared and as I listened to his story, something happened. Compassion began to well up in my heart, just by listening. See, compassion grows with listening more and talking less. Third posture, the posture of involvement. Okay, the posture of involvement. It's hard to really love from a distance. It just is. And so I would just encourage you to get involved in some way where there's a need. Okay, like like I said, our regional ministries that we have here at Compass are really great environments to get involved with, to grow in compassion. If you talk to those people on those teams, they will tell you at first, they didn't have this compassion in these areas at the beginning, but as they got more and more involved, as they got closer to the to the need, God began to develop compassion in them. He had just some ideas. And our job isn't to try and drum up compassion w- with our effort. Our job is to, to step into and cre- create environments for God to develop more tender hearts in us, Okay, just think of these three things as three ways that are maybe like a greenhouse for for growing compassion, places where God can cultivate and develop compassion in us. Let's keep going. Number four, love responds. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Agape's love isn't just good intention or feeling sorry. The love for neighbor that Jesus commends the Samaritan for was a love of action. I mean, Jesus himself would demonstrate this kind of love for us in the most incredible way. His compassion resulted in his doing, in action. When on the cross, he, he just like the Samaritan, he bandaged the wounds Of our sin. He poured on oil and wine of forgiveness and healing and grace. He placed us on His own donkey as He allowed us to share in His righteousness. And He is bringing us to a heavenly inn where the Father will take care of us forever. Jesus taught us that love is most powerfully demonstrated in the way that He loves us through action. John explains it like this in 1 John 3, 18. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Did you catch that? Love that responds in deed is love that is actually true. And so what does that tell us about love that that only comes from our tongues and never reaches our hands? See, the priest and the Levite in the story, in both cases, the text tells us they saw the man lying, beaten on the road. And like my assumption is they likely felt sorry for him. We have no evidence that these guys were monsters. But here's the difference. The Samaritan did something about it. No matter how small it might seem or how big it might seem, do something. When you see a need, do something. Finally, love costs. Love costs. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. And I cannot stand here today and tell you that loving your neighbor won't cost you anything. It will. It may cost you some money like it did the Samaritan. About two days wages in this case. It may cost you some resources like it did the Samaritan. The wine and the oil and the bandages, I'm sure he packed them for his own use on this trip. It may cost you some convenience like it did the Samaritan. This act surely cost him some valuable time in his travels. It may cost you some messiness like it did the Samaritan lifting up this man, dirt and blood now on him as he helped the beaten man onto his own donkey. Loving our neighbor usually comes with some uncomfortable, awkward, and messy moments when we engage with people in their lives. But that's the point. The cost it makes us like the Samaritan. The one whose life touched the heart of Jesus. The one about whom Jesus said, go and do likewise. Some things sound easy, but they are not easy. But they're worth it. Love stops and meets people where they're at. Love sees, it doesn't look away. Love pities, it feels the pain of others, it's compassionate. Love responds, it does something. And love costs. But oh, it's worth the price because it makes us lovers of our neighbors. It moves the heart of Jesus and it makes us like him. And loving our neighbors takes us from being fans of Jesus to being all in followers of Jesus who love the Lord our God with everything.